Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to Trending. Joining me today on the show is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, and we're going to discuss two rather controversial topics. We often speak about in vitro fertilization and everything surrounding LGBTQ ideology today. And we will discuss what happens often in the moral ramifications of creating new life outside the body, the impact on the woman who is a surrogate or the woman who's going through IVF. Another take that is so important that we address is how all of these issues impact children. So today we're going to discuss the impact on donor-conceived children via IVF, for example. And we're also going to talk about children and same-sex parenting. How do children fare? What's the impact? Joining me today to discuss is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. She's the founder of the Ruth Institute, and they are an incredible resource for combating some of the most challenging topics of today with everything from their events they host to their database of resources, factual information, backing up the pro-life, Catholic, pro-marriage position that we all hold. Dr. Morse, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, Timory. It's nice to talk to you again. I was thinking of you this past week. I received a social media message from a woman who shared that she recently encountered a young man who is about to enter drug rehab. He had informed her that he was conceived via IVF. He's an IVF baby and has a lesbian mother, he says. And he said he has learned that his father, who he refers to as a sperm donor, has 22 other children from different women. He said that his father donated sperm in college to make some extra cash. And she said, you can imagine with everything from not having a father to many other things, which I think will connect to IVF and some of the symptoms of it as well. He was often mocked and made fun of being referred to uh, as derogatory words because of his upbringing, uh, in part because he was considered small and non-masculine. He now struggles with a drug addiction, and there's much to discuss in this entire case, but it's heartbreaking when I heard this story because it reminded me of the work you do and have done for years on exposing the reality of the impact that conceiving a child via in vitro fertilization, other third-party reproductive technologies, that impact that it actually has on the child as a child is an infant, but all the way up into adulthood. So if we could unpack this, I know you have seen similar stories such as these yourself as well. Well, I have. I've heard a lot of different stories of this kind. And you're right. The right word is heartbreaking. These stories are heartbreaking. And, you know, I alternate between being heartbroken for this young man that you just described and at the same time angry at the adults in this world who know that these are risky procedures, who know that there are uh, risks associated with IVF, 
with same-sex parenting, with sperm donation, who know that there, there are risks involved, and yet they keep it to themselves. They do not reveal these risks. I, I, I would love to know, Timory, and I would just love for some pro-life legislator to do something about informed consent inside IVF clinics, mm-hmm. you know, to put mm-hmm. in the fa- to, to require that when a woman comes in and says, I want to use these techniques, that they put my brochure <laughs> into their hands with the, with the 19 pages of footnotes that I have to back up that one little piece of paper brochure that, that, uh, that you have in front of you. I mean, it's just, it's horrendous. The risks that, that the woman experiences, which we know something about, but also the risks to the child, that, mm. that people enter into these processes thinking that it's harmless, thinking that there's no risk at all. That's not right. That is just mm. not right mm. for people to, to, to be undertaking life-changing uh, procedures and, and making life-changing, life-altering decisions without anything approaching full information. It just, it just drives me crazy. It's interesting to me, Dr. Morse, because I think we're starting to see people come out and share their stories of yes. failed in vitro oh. fertilization, of yeah. repeated cycles, and how it impacted them and how they themselves are sharing it. Even in the stories, for example, of boy band sensation Lance Bass to everyone from Khloe Kardashian and others who are saying this seemed transactional. This didn't seem right. Mm. I had a hard time bonding with these children. What we're seeing, Dr. Morse, is a lot of them are saying they're recognizing there's a level of consumerism behind yes. how they've been conceiving these children. And looking at your data with regard to the impact that donor-conceived children, IVF, surrogacy has on these children, I'm looking at a couple things in particular that are pointing to me uh, to parallels that sound similar to breeding dogs. And humans oh. are not oh. dogs. <laughs> but when I think about you know these small breeds that they're trying to create today, often you hear all all of these issues medically with everything from blood pressure issues, glucose levels, uh, small dogs that are too small and fragile. And it's becoming more and more common in dog breeds with these astronomical medical bills. But what we're also seeing is that this is occurring. Again, humans can't be compared to dogs, but we're seeing this in this designer baby mindset, similar <clears throat> in, a similar impact in the health of these children conceived in this way. Yes, yes. Uh, w- one thing that people are generally not aware of, I think, is that the, the, the risk for preterm birth and the risk for um, stillbirth and the risk for a low birth weight is elevated in children who've been conceived through artificial means, okay? And so if, you, if you're looking at stillbirth, well, stillbirth, obviously, the parents are devastated when the baby dies, but, mm-hmm. uh, but when you're looking at low birth weight or you're looking at preterm birth, which are also obviously correlated with one another, there are a whole series of problems associated with that right mm-hmm. out of the chute, you know? So uh, apart from any other issues that arise from the, the, these kind of techniques, the fact alone that you're at risk, you're doing something that puts your child at risk for low birth weight and low and, and, and higher probability of preterm birth, that is already a risk factor that people should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a lot of times a preterm birth is going to be uh, associated with, with multiple other defects, you know, um, under, underdeveloped um, sensory organs, uh, things like that, um, that, that are going to have lifetime consequences. Now, a lot of people have uh, 
low birth weight babies, a lot of people have preterm births, and you can't help it. It's going to happen. And we take heroic measures to save those kids and to help those kids do everything we can to, to prevent it. But when you realize that, when you undertake these procedures in themselves, you're the one who created the risk, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and yes. when the parents figure that out, it's got to be, uh, it's, it's just got to be really hard on, on everybody all the way around. That, that's why it's, it's so obnoxious uh, that people treat this as if it's a consumer product that you buy off the shelf. Okay, I'm ready to have a baby now. I froze my eggs five years ago. I'm ready. Let's pull the eggs out of the deep freeze and do these procedures, and now everything's going to be fine. Well, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not. And, and by the time you get to that point, if you're 40, um, and, and this is your first attempt to, to have a child, if it doesn't go right, you don't have a lot of wiggle room left mm -hmm. in your life. You know, you don't, ha you don't have a lot of time for a do-over at that point. And that, again, is something that, that women are sadly, sadly under-informed about, in my opinion. That's Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris here on Trending with Tim Ray. She's from the Ruth Institute. We're talking about donor-conceived children, IVF, all the third-party reproductive technologies, but in particular the impact on the children who are created in this process. And I do want to pause for a moment because it's important that we understand that we always celebrate. We always celebrate and honor a human person. However, yes. we're talking about the means of getting there as problematic, especially when you said, Dr. Morse, it's one thing when someone has a medical condition. It's another thing when we know that we're creating children with these likely medical conditions. Let's right. talk, for example, uh, with regard to advanced paternal age, because we have these oh. sperm banks or we have couples who have large age discrepancies and we have sperm being harvested of men who normally, traditionally, societally, normally you compare people in a closer age range. So talk to me about this advanced paternal age, whether it's due to infertility and people are looking to infertility, third party reproductive technologies later on in life to help with that, or whether it's even just donation of someone who's a little older than usually people are having children. Right. right. Well, so this is, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I don't think I've ever had anybody voluntarily bring this topic up. <laughs> And, and and this is something that's not in our brochure. I want to just pause and mention that the Ruth Institute has a couple of brochures on this topic, and they're you know they're cheap, they're easy to get. Uh, one's called Children and Donor Conception Assisted Reproduction, and there's one called Children and Same Sex Parenting, which we'll get to in a moment. But 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 you see, because right now worldwide in the developed countries, Timory, you and I know this. All of your listeners are going to recognize this as soon as I say it. The price of an advanced degree, the price of entering the professions, the price of even a college degree to some extent, but certainly entry into the professions, the price is you must postpone fertility. See, and whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, we are expected to postpone our fertility so that the average age at first marriage is approaching, is approaching 30 in the United States. The average age at first marriage and first conception in some European countries is 35, almost 40. That's the average, right? <laughs> if that's mm -hmm. the average, that means there are people older than that doing it. And so if you ask your question, you, you, women are tuned into the idea that, gee, as we get older, our eggs may not be as good. We may we, we may cease producing eggs, we may run out of eggs, um, and, and, and there's a higher, it's been known for a long time, there's a higher risk of certain kinds of birth defects as you get old, as, as the mother gets older. But it has not been as well studied, except until fairly recently, uh, what difference does the advanced paternal age make if the father's egg 
the, sorry, the father's gametes, you know, the father's age, what difference does that make? And it, it, these studies are, are now mm, 10, 15 years old, and they come out of Israel, are the ones that I'm familiar with, and, and there may be more recent ones too. But what they're finding is an elevated risk of uh, an association between advanced paternal age and autism spectrum disorder, okay, the kids being on the autism spectrum, um, mm -hmm. and also um, schizophrenia, an elevated risk of schizophrenia. And the theory is this, um, in a, for, for a woman, if, you're, if your egg is, is, um, is uh, how, do we want, how do we want to put it, is old and, and not so Mature. great. The baby, the baby doesn't make it. The baby right. doesn't make it. Or you don't conceive, okay? Right. But what they suspect is happening with the fathers is that the, um, they still produce sperm, uh, but, but when the sperm, when the DNA replicates, it replicates imperfectly, but the imperfections are not enough to be fatal to the child. So the child survives and it's great, you know, we've got a baby, um, and we, we, we dodged that bullet, we got ourselves a baby, and then a few years later they discover uh, 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 that, that, that their child has some, some issues that they didn't really expect, and that are not, strictly speaking, genetic in the sense of being inherited, right? But it, but it is genetic in the sense that something went wrong with the gene replication process for the dad. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is, a, this is a factor. And the professional classes, a lot of people would prefer not to think too closely about it or talk about it too much. But I think it's really important if you've had this type of issue in your family, it's a good idea to, to you know, uh, uh, gird your loins, so to speak, be brave um, and, and talk about it if you can, as candidly as you can, knowing that there's no perfect proof, right? If, you're, if your husband is 45 and you have a child on the autism spectrum, it doesn't prove that that's why. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm blaming somebody in that, in that sense. But I do think if you look at us as a culture, as a society, as we promote the advanced age at first birth, the way we're doing, especially among the educated classes, um, we are setting ourselves up for something that we really should be thinking about a lot more carefully than we are right now. And, and so we should be thinking about, well, how can we make it possible for a young couple in their 20s to start a family and sustain that family uh, without going bankrupt and still being able to participate in higher education and the professions and all the rest of it, you know. That's, I think, where, we, where our thoughts should be going as a society. I absolutely agree. And I'll give a brief caveat and we'll post a links to some episodes on how do you get pregnant? What's possible with advanced age? We have incredible NAPRO physicians who join us here on Trending. I always share my story. I have children in part thanks to NAPRO technology, which honors and respects the body of women getting to the bottom of infertility issues and medical conditions that impact fertility so that you can have children if possible, rather than using birth control or turning to life-destroying, damaging for women's bodies and bad for children, things such as third-party reproductive technologies. I do want to talk for just a moment. We've been talking about the medical side of this, and I shared a story at the beginning, but I keep coming back whenever I talk about the impact of children who have been conceived via IVF and the donation from donation clinics, sperm donation clinics. And I remember you were actually the first person to ever put this perspective in my mind when you shared with oh. me that you had met a young man who had countless siblings Yes. from the same father who had donated quite a bit of sperm to a sperm bank, and it was disturbing for him because of who he was encountering. Can you share just a little bit about that story? Yes. Because I think this uh, yeah. is significant. 
Yes, I remember that. And it's, it's related to the story that you told at the beginning. You know, these guys have the idea that this is, you know, to, to masturbate into a jar for money is, is easy, easy money, you know. And, and so this particular young man that I encountered, um, his father had donate, donated, had sold his sperm, I think once a month all through medical school. Um, and so there was, it, it was possible, it was imaginable that he, that he might have had as many as 500 siblings, half siblings, you know. Um, oh. And he was, in a, he was in a middle-sized town, not a, not a big city, not Chicago, but bigger than Lake Charles. Um, you know, not 100,000, but, but not a big metropolis. And, you know, he was looking around and seeing people close to his own age and thinking, that guy kind of looks like me. I wonder if, uh, you know, kind of a thing. And when you think about that experience, you know, that, that an unknown stranger, a stranger that you encounter on the street, you could possibly be related to because of the way your father distributed his sperm. Um, it is a very disturbing image. And in my opinion, no person should have to wonder something like that. You see what I mean? If, if, if you do what the church is telling you and, and have one man, one woman for life, and you keep the sperm and eggs inside the body until you're ready to use them and, and leave them there, you know, uh, a situation like that's never going to arise. It's just mm -hmm. never going to happen mm -hmm. that you're going to be at the supermarket and wonder if that's your kid brother. Um, right. You're going to know your siblings. You're going to be attached to your siblings. Um, and you're going to know your mother and father, and you're going to have the same set of siblings your whole life, which is where the whole divorce and remarriage and, and uh, multiple partner fertility issue comes in, where people, people have, do not ha have siblings their whole childhood, but not the same set of siblings because a relationship breaks up and the step-parent mm -hmm. moves away and takes your step-siblings with them. And even if you loved those siblings and got attached to them, nobody cares about that anymore, you know? Right. All these kinds of things that young people in today's world have to put up with, that, that simply is not even on the table as a factor right. mm -hmm. if you're living according to traditional Christian sexual ethics. As, which is one to a customer for life. That's what our yes. Lord wants us to do. Yeah. And this is why we're talking about this, because some people say, why are you hating on people who can't have children? I get it. I really do. That's why I share my fertility story. I right. wholeheartedly, mm -hmm. and I know you do as well in your own mm -hmm. story, have such a strong heart for people who are struggling to have children. But fundamentally, on the side of the child, every child has a desire and a right to be known by his or her family, both parents and siblings. And even international law to date still upholds a right of a child to that relationship with their biological parents. But what's crazy here when we talk about children who are being conceived via third-party reproductive technologies and through sperm and egg banks, we're talking about children who, in the case that you just shared, have 500 siblings. I was talking at the beginning of the show about a young man who has 40 siblings. And this is a significance where it's almost defeating and impossible for someone to know and be known by their family. And I think that's a very significant when we're giving this positive take as Catholics, as you're talking about, Dr. Morris, that we uphold the gift of marriage. We have pulled the gift of procreation within the context of marriage and all natural, right? And that we that's celebrate right. new life. That's the positive side. And this is what we hope for. And this is why we talk about these resources for conceiving children via natural means. And 
I maybe just a brief comment because I know people will come back saying, well, what about adoption? Children from adoption come into families and they don't have their biological mother and father. Yet we understand that the hope of that parent who is placing their child for adoption is to help give their child the best circumstances. I know you yourself have adopted. If you could speak for a moment from that perspective when people say, well, you're just attacking people who can't have children. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. We, we've been... We are adoptive parents, we're birth parents, and we were also foster parents, okay? So I can speak about it from a number of perspectives. But the, the first thing we have to understand about adoption is that the child who is placed for adoption has already lost something, okay? Mm -hmm. Something has happened that has made it impossible for their parents to, you know, that neither parent is available to take care of that child. That's the only reason somebody ends up being placed for adoption, you know, is that both of the parents... Uh, are in one way or the other unavailable. And so from the child's perspective, they've already sustained a loss. And so what the institution of adoption is meant to do is to try to replicate for the child as nearly as possible what they've lost, you know, uh, which is a stable, loving home with a mom and a dad. That's, that's what's just for the child. And, and in a sense, if you think about it, um, adoption's a backup plan. And mm -hmm. I say that as an adoptive parent, I know I'm, am I saying I'm second best or adoptive parents are second best? Well, in some way, no, but in another way, yes, because honestly, your wish for your child, once you know your child and you love your child and you can't imagine your life without your child, you think about it, you think about what was it like for this little boy to be in an orphanage for a year? What was it like for this child to be separated from his parents? You don't wish that on your child. You know, you wish that none of that had happened. You know, mm -hmm. that, they, that they could have been with their mom and dad. You know, so it's, a, it's an odd, um, uh, you know, sort of perfectly imperfect um, setup mentally that an adoptive parent has to go through. You, you wish for the best for them. And at this time, you are the best for them. Um, but, but, you know, you know that they sustained some kind of loss and, and you don't, you're not happy that that happened to them. Of course not, you know. Um, and, and, and the other thing I want to say about the, per, from the perspective of a, of a foster parent is that I can tell you for a fact that the children who were in our care, my husband and I, um, you know, they, what they wanted was their mom and dad. They wanted their mom and dad to get it together, pull themselves together and be appropriate parents. They didn't care about living in our big fancy house. They would rather live in the back of a truck or in the back of a van with their own mom and dad. You know, that's what the kids want. Um, and, and so I, I, I feel I, I'm quite confident that the perspective that we're offering here, the child-centered perspective that, we're, that you and I have been talking about here, really truly is child-centered in, in the sense that, you know, if you ask, if you ask a kid, they're going to tell you, that, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse from the Ruth Institute, the founder of the Ruth Institute. We're going to come back with her discussing children and same-sex parenting. What's the impact on children in this context? Find her work at ruthinstitute.org. That's ruthinstitute.org. She has incredible data-driven content to help back up the position of the Catholic Church, the pro-life position, the position that upholds the family, children. It's so important that we have this information to engage in these conversations. We'll be right back with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. So, what's trending? 
bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. We're going to continue our series on Theology of the Body as we unpack the actual text of Pope St. John Paul II. So many people have heard of it. Maybe they've read commentaries on it. Or perhaps you felt like this was before your time and you never read this rich theological, philosophical, and really anthropological story of the human person, the fundamental understanding of who and what we are that is prophetic in addressing the crises of our culture. So stay with me as we continue that series. Now joining me is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. She is the founder of the Ruth Institute. You can find her at ruthinstitute.org. She has a PhD in economics and her work has driven her from personal experience as well as combating the culture as a Catholic to address in particular the crises directly affronting the family. And in her work, I've always been inspired by her focus on how our choices as adults impact children. We were talking earlier about third-party reproductive technology and how children are impacted if they were conceived, for example, via IVF, via a donor bank, etc. But now I want to shift direction to an even more controversial topic in some respects, and that is the impact of same-sex parenting on children. It seems as if Dr. Morris, every television show for the last 10 plus years has to have what I refer to as that token character for the sake of diversity who is living a same-sex lifestyle. But over the last year or two, I think we're starting to see where they're developing these character plots more rather than just having that person there as a representative of a different type of lifestyle. And one of those character plots that I'm currently seeing in the show I'm watching is where they are incorporating same-sex parenting, and they're going through the process of trying to adopt a children, uh, to adopt children. I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact, if there is any, which we know there is, that data points to when a child is raised intentionally with the same-sex parent. So, quote, what, what people call today two moms or two dads. Well, yes, this is a, this is a huge topic in the run-up to the Obergefell decision, okay? Yes. When all the states were uh, considering this in the state legislatures, when states were passing um, marriage amendments to define marriage as the union of a man and a woman within the boundaries of their states, um, this topic of same-sex parenting was a highly contested issue. And at that time, I was up on, you know, every study, <laughs> Timory, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. And I would wake up in the morning and, and there'd be in my inbox five people saying, Dr. Morris, did you see this study? And I'd go, wait, wait, let me, well, let me wake up and look at this study. <laughs> I'll get back <laughs> to you. But, and you could pretty much predict what it was going to be. You know, there'd be a headline saying, you know, lesbians make the best parents ever or something like that, you know. Uh, and then you'd go and you'd look at it and it would it would have serious methodological flaws, you know, either the biggest ones being either small sample size or unrepresentative samples, okay? And so as that as that period of time, as we, as the debate developed more and more, um, the, some of the studies began to be more representative and, and have more representative data and, you know, taking more care to, to hold things constant appropriately and stuff like that. And the better the studies were, the more it pointed to problems uh, and potential pitfalls associated with same-sex parenting. Um, and, and also towards the end of this period, 
um, there had always been, um, what, do, what do you want to say, um, trophies, kids who were trophies, who were mm -hmm. brought up to say, my mom, is my mom is married to a woman, and it's great, I have two moms, and my life is great. And, you know, if, if you were testifying in a state legislature or something, you could count on there being that set up. Some, somebody would present that. Um, but as the thing wore on, uh, older people who had been raised by same-sex parents years ago, who were now adults, they were starting to testify and tell their stories about what happened to them. And then again, the picture was a little bit more cloudy <laughs> once mm -hmm. that started happening. So, so, the, so the fact is there's a lot of what we could call uh, advocacy research would be the polite way to, to put it, you know, uh, junk science would be the impolite way to put it. Um, <laughs> uh, but but there, was a, there, there was a highly contested area. Uh, and the better the studies got, the more it pointed to the fact that there were going to be problems. Oh, okay, and so I'll, I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it with that for now. And and uh, you know maybe you have something specific you want to ask about. I do really appreciate you setting that backdrop because I think it's significant that often, unfortunately, we have to qualify these conversations when we have them, and that history is important because, as you said, this was highly contested eight years ago during the Obergefell versus Hodges case where the decision was made that same-sex marriage would become the law of the land despite the majority of states in the United States voting against it. Right. And I think we're going to be having this debate again. I know places such as California are working to enshrine same-sex marriage in the state constitution right now mm -hmm. uh, because right. it's expected that Obergefell versus Hodges will fall. And currently, California, along with many other states, have in their state laws constitutional amendments that uphold marriage between one man and one woman. And believe it or not, California, I know you worked on the forefront of this issue as well <laughs> back in 2008. Yeah. We fought yeah. viscerally. And guess what? The people of California said that marriage is between one man and one woman and it was put into the constitution and so this is significant because this debate will be significant in i believe the next six to eight months over same-sex parenting and the data as you said is quote advocacy research and fa false data and so we need to get into the real data things such as the significance of a child especially boys having a father the significance of rough and tumble play let's start maybe just for a moment focusing on boys here well, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, here's here's a larger problem with doing the research and doing it correctly, okay? And that is that there aren't that many cases, right? So you you have to oversample, and it's legitimate to oversample, to, but to do it correctly, you have to make sure that you have enough cases of children who've been raised by same-sex couples in order to have meaningful statistical comparisons, okay? So as far, I, I'm not aware, um, and I, I may have missed something because I haven't been keeping, I've, we've had other issues we've had to keep track of now. Um, there may, it's, I'm not aware of studies that have broken down boys versus girls, okay, for same-sex parenting. But we do know that um, if you look at other forms of family breakdown, we do know that it affects girls and boys differently, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and so if you look at family breakdown generally, uh, the impact for boys is that boys' ability to regulate their um, their violence and their emotions, um, if they if they grow up without a father, that th those boys are more prone to crime and um, and uh, lack of self control and things like that. That's what you tend to see with boys. With girls, when you see a girl without a father, you have a tendency to see early sexual activity. And all the problems that are associated with that, you know, 
Um, and, and and even with girls, there's there's even the issue that if a, if a girl grows up in a home with her own biological father living in the house, she gets her period later than other girls, and in particular, she gets her period later than girls who have an unrelated male in the household. Now, an unrelated male is not a is not the big problem you're going to have in a, in a lesbian household. <laughs> That's not the problem. But when you're looking at family breakdown generally, where you have unmarried parents and um, multiple partner fertility, mom is not married in the first place, her second child is with a different man than the first child was with, unrelated males in the household is a huge problem for the lower classes of people who cycle through their sex partners like that. You see what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot that we do know about the impact of just family breakdown on kids and the, and the gender differentials. Um, but but it's hard. It's uh, we don't have enough data right now that I'm aware of, and you should get Father Sullins on here because he knows more about it. Um, but but um, I I don't think we know right now the differential impact on boys and girls. Right now we'd be um, drawing reasonable inferences. I think they'd be reasonable inferences to draw from family breakdown generally as to how a girl versus a boy would be affected by having two dads or two moms. You know. Well, in one area, perhaps we could talk a little bit about with regard to the impact that we see of data where children don't have, for example, again, the father in the home, we'll talk about that here, uh, is that boys, when they have rough and tumble play that come, boys and girls, from the father, they learn things such as self-control with regard yep. to how far goes too far. They learn delayed gratification because that's a desire of boys and girls to play in rough and tumble play with their parent. And they learn, no, I can't have this now, but I can look forward to when dad gets home or when he's ready to do this after he's been home after dinner. Or for girls in particular, but I would also argue in today's culture with the radical sense of sexuality and how it's been, learning safe touch as well. Yes, it's yes. so important for girls, but I would really argue for boys as well today. Yes, uh, everything that you say is true. And I would just add, add to that what you said. Um, the fact that when the play gets too rough, uh, the game stops. If somebody gets hurt, dad mm -hmm. puts a stop to it, right? And if you think about the alternative, one big alternative to rough and tumble play with your with your dad or your older brothers, one alternative is video games. And what happens in a video game when someone gets hurt in a video game? You get points. You get points for killing someone. You know. And and some of the games have have very graphic graphics, right? Of, of people getting blown up and things like that. You know. So it's it's not nothing. <laughs> that we're sacrificing here, you know, that 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 um, that children do not have that personal interaction with an adult male who can help regulate their their emotions, regulate their bodies, all of those things that go into it, and you're replacing that with virtual reality. Mm, that's a that, there, there's a lot of loss there that we haven't fully come to grips with. Mm. And I often tie this topic, Dr. Morris, to. The challenge that we see in adoption as well, because I think this is relevant where you can draw conclusions where children always seek out and desire to know their biological mother and how significant that is for children. Yes. So children, when they have, quote, two dads, uh, which there's no such thing, there can be people who would like to be called a father. Uh, but I right. think it's important that we have those conversations that at the end of the day, this child has a desire and a right to be known and loved by his or her biological parents. Yes, uh, that, that's, that's really true. And that has had to be 
downplayed so much uh, in our era of radical family breakdown. I mean, it's bad enough when kids lose access to their parents because of the divorce, right? That's bad enough. But for their lives to begin with the idea that they will never know one of their parents, that the, that the law blocks them from knowing, okay? I mean, the whole uh, legal arrangement of anonymous sperm donation is the law literally in a radical way coming between a child and their parent. And why are they doing that? Because the adults want it. And when you look at it from that perspective, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? How can, how, how can we justify this in our minds, you know? Mm. I want to share a little story because it's been significant for me. You know, I've shared before, we were talking about this last week on the show. I have many relatives in my extended family, some of whom I grew up very close to, who've lived in same-sex relationships, having partners that I've known or my family's known even longer than I have existed here. Uh-huh. And something interesting to me in the last five years is that two sets of my neighbors over the last couple of years directly next door to me have been two sets of neighbors that were in same-sex relationships. And one of those homes, there was a family where there were, quote, two dads and three children, three young males. And, you know, you could in some way say, great, this is a boy house, two dads, three three boys were in their teenage years. And during that time I was there, I was fascinated. And I do have to share, fascinated by the context of what was happening. And once I want to share that they have been, by the way, some of the kindest and most thoughtful neighbors I've ever had. But on the other side, in the state where I saw these three young teenage boys, I was pregnant during that time. And Dr. Morris, I remember those teenage boys would just sit outside and stare at me while I was walking around with this look of admiration and desire, not wrongful desire, but desire out of curiosity. Because here I was very pregnant, carrying my child. And there was that longing that I saw on their hearts and we would you know, be walking the neighborhood and they would just look at me with this very sweet smile, a smile of curiosity. And it broke my heart because what I saw there in those simple little interactions of these kind young men was a mm-hmm. desire for something that had been rejected, whether it was via abandonment or whether in this context also through two people choosing to live as same-sex parents, and my heart broke for these young boys. That's really interesting. Were you ever able to verbalize that with them? Did they ever share their feelings about that? I thought with time it would be a door that would open. We ended up moving actually out Uh of the state for a season, and I thought Uh especially it would be a door that would open after I had my daughter. And Uh it was also during COVID, so there was some fear Uh on their part about having too much of a close contact as well at that time. But it always, you know, I just sat there thinking, wow, I I wish that there could be more that was done, that they could know, you know, having those conversations that would allow them to maybe decompress from what they're experiencing. And I think these are opportunities that we as Catholics, Dr. Morse, can offer society that is longing for those relationships and maybe has a hard time vocalizing it. What you're saying is very interesting to me. I've, I, I, I've never heard this story before. I, I've, I've heard a lot, I hear a lot of stories with Timory, but I, I haven't heard this one before. And I think this is, I think you're onto something very interesting. I really do. Because what you're describing is completely credible to me. You know, in other words, I can easily picture a, a child an adult child, or you know, and not a not a baby, 
not not a child in the sense of a baby, but uh, but a but a reasonably mature young man. It, being Longing, in awe, yeah. mm-hmm. being in mm-hmm. awe of, of what they were seeing, and and yeah. whether they're, of course, their fathers didn't mean to do that to them. I, I assume you know nobody mm-hmm. means to do that. They, it, it happens as a byproduct of something else they want. But yeah, that's very fascinating. Dr. Jennifer Robeck Morse, (laughs) thank you for joining us. It's a reminder that we need to have our eyes and hearts open to what's happening in the culture. Seeing, yes, people say love is love, but there's so much more to that. There's the child and there's that longing desire and that right to be known and loved by your parents. And we have a role to play in helping to heal those wounds. That's Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Find her at this is an important website. Take it down, ruthinstitute.org. You need to have this data references. We'll post the link on social media as well as in the episode notes where we tagged Dr. Morse as well. We'll be right back. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We're wrapping up our first week in our series on theology of the body, a crash course in what Pope St. John Paul II said, how prophetic it was, the historical context. So if you have missed any of it, be sure to check out the podcast. Even if you miss the daily episode, be sure to subscribe to Trending with Timory at relevantradio.com forward slash trending. You can catch us on the Relevant Radio app and wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. But you need to pick up the Relevant Radio app because it's easy to share, text text an episode to a friend, but also there you can find and discover prayers and other great content from the show. I want to discuss, as we're diving into this topic of freedom, a comment that was made yesterday as I talked about what is freedom from a Catholic perspective. And someone called in, I didn't get to share this, they called in and said this, freedom comes with another part as well. Because I was sharing, just a little context, freedom is for the purpose of doing what is good, what is right. There's a quote that I shared, if you weren't with us yesterday on the show, from Pope St. John Paul II. He says, freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. And I discussed how fundamental this is as human beings, that we have this deep need and capacity for love and relationship to give that to others, but also to receive it from others as well, that other people need this and we do too. And yet this call that came in, he said, freedom comes with another part. We have the right to the consequences as well. What does that mean? We have a right. There's a sense of justice and the fact that when we exercise our freedom, we have a right to the consequences that come as a result. Consequences, for example, to the body. We've been talking about third-party reproductive technologies and same-sex parenting today here on the show. What happens? Well, there are a lot, a lot of things that fall out that happen from the body, the soul, the mind, the psychological development of the human person, the interpersonal dynamic. That's the fallout of our freedom when we fail to choose what we ought. And that is very significant. And I think that as we dive into our Theology of the Body series, continuing to unpack Pope St. John Paul II's catechetical teachings, 133 of them, we bring this back to the historical state of the human person, as we were talking about yesterday in our series, that Pope St. John Paul II, when talking about some of the words of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 19 and 
sorry, Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 in his response with regard to marriage that Jesus Christ appeals to the beginning, the dawn of creation, the human person as created male and female in the image and likeness of God with dominion over the earth. And what Pope St. John Paul II emphasized is the historical state of the human person has two dimensions. First and foremost, that original state of innocence that prior to the fall, the person had sanctifying grace. That person was in an original state of absolute innocence. But then after that came original sin, human sinfulness, concupiscence that we all carry now. But what's significant here is that we're made for so much more and we are restored by grace. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even in the midst of that historical state of the human person, it's the prior, that is the original innocence of the human being, that we need to focus on and regain. And in fact, Pope St. John Paul II, in discussing, right after using that phrase for the first time, quote, theology of the body, he starts to talk immediately about the redemption of the body. And this is the eternal perspective that we are called to have here and now in whatever context of human history and whatever political climate or in whatever ideological crises we are experiencing in our day. In fact, Pope St. John Paul II, when talking about the redemption of the body, talks about St. Paul in his writing to the Romans where he says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Why? Why do we wait for the redemption of our bodies? If God created us, aren't we good? We are inherently good, but we also have the mark of original sin and we need to be restored to God's grace. And that is done through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ distributed to us via the sacraments in the church. And that we have a responsibility as baptized Catholics to be preserved, to be sustained in that state of grace. I remember some years ago, my friend's child was being baptized. And right after father baptized this little baby girl, he looked up at all of us, threw his finger up and made eye contact. It felt like with every single person there for a moment of silence. And he said, and now you are responsible for helping to preserve the state of grace in this child. That is what you're responsible for out of the community. But this is also what we are responsible for in ourselves. This is a responsibility for me, for our children that we have, that we understand that even in the fallen state of the human person, we are glorified in Jesus Christ and that the redemption of the body is what all of creation groans for, as, as is said by St. Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. This perspective is something we have to understand guarantees our relationship with God. It helps us to understand, as Pope St. John Paul II says, man's hereditary state of sin and his original innocence. And that it's the original innocence that we need to regain through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the redemption of the body. This is where I think that for us, in our journey as Catholics, and I hate that word sometimes, journey as Catholics, but in our responsibility, we have to understand the fundamental role of the sacraments in our faith. That's why when we talk about theology of the body, so often people think of it as the theology of human sexuality, but it's the theology of who we are. 
what we are made for. It's our human anthropology. And in that, understanding this redemptive dimension of the human body, understanding St. Paul's comment on the groaning of all of creation for God, we see we need God in the sacraments. We need to be unified with him in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. This is why this theology of the body is Eucharistic. It should inspire us to live in total union with God. And to do that in our fallen human nature, we need sanctifying grace. We need to be restored to get grace through the sacrament of reconciliation. So if you are in any state of sin, if you're in a state of and let's hear this and focus on this for a moment. If you are in a state of having committed a mortal sin, we all need to go running to confession when we or if we are ever in that place. Because that severs us from the life of God. That severs us from sanctifying grace. That severs us from the redemption of the body that is only possible in God. Why are things so polarizing today? Because in a society that has rejected God, we have rejected our own bodies. This is seen as evident in the gender ideology, the LGBTQ push in our culture to indoctrinate and steal children into this mindset. It's a battle for souls, not just for ideologies. It's a battle for souls, pulling people away from understanding, pulling children away from understanding their God-given identity the rule of sanctifying grace, that in God all things are possible. Do we actually believe that? And if we do, why haven't we gone to confession? Why aren't we predisposing ourselves to receive our Lord Jesus Christ worthily in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist by going to confession? Why don't we consider going to Mass more frequently? making it a couple more times during the week to daily Mass, not because it's an obligation, because it's not, but because we're much obliged, it's our honor, it's our joy to be united with God, to be graced by God in that experience. And so the theology of the body helps us to conform our lives back to the original understanding of the intended innocence of the human being, the impact of the fall, and the reality of the redemption of the body that is only made possible in God. That's what we need to understand in the midst of our own internal turmoil experiences within the family, experiences within our micro-communities, experiences we see internationally, worldwide, with ideologies raging against us. This is the answer to what is happening with everything from the pro-abortion culture to the LGBTQ ideology to the brokenness within our own hearts as we groan and long for Jesus Christ. It's been a great hour. I'll be back with you in a couple weeks. You're on trending. Be sure to catch the podcast. I'll be out of town. But up next, the family rosary across America. And Brooke Taylor will be filling in for me next week here on trending.